is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today, relational inequality theory. My guests are Dustin Avent-Holt from Augusta University and Donald tomaskovic Devi from UMass Amherst. Our discussion was recorded on September 25th, 2019. We are here with Dustin Avent-Holt and Donald tomaskovic Devi. They've been getting a ton of buzz over their new book, Relational Inequalities, an Organizational Approach with Oxford University Press. Came out this January 2019. Yep. And in it, they outline their relational inequality theory. It was, it's been getting buzz. I really enjoyed the coverage of it on org theory. So thank you very much uh, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us, Joe. We're happy to be here. And, and first of all, how's the book been received on your end? Been generating interest, the types of discussions that you want to be into? or? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think so. I don't have a, like, I don't know knowledge of book sales or anything like that that I'm right. keeping up with, but uh it seemed to be buzz around at ASA, and I think it sold out at ASA. So I'm totally excited with the reception the book's getting. Mm. There's been a lot of activity on Twitter. Um, there's been some podcasts. Every time I go to a conference or visit another department, somebody says, oh, I've just read it. They usually mean I'm about to read it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we're also already seeing people use it in research, That's which awesome. is really the thing that is most promising and most gratifying. It was getting great buzz at ASAs. Tell us, relational inequality theory, what's it about? So our kind of key focus is to, what we're trying to do is to argue against kind of dominant frameworks in, in sociology right now uh, for a long time that focus in on either one of two levels, either individual traits or kind of national political economic context, what so kind of micro and macro and we think that the real sort of key here is to look at how social relationships actually put those particular things in motion. So how they take individual traits and, and make them meaningful inside of uh, particular contexts. So we, we then argue that relationships are the kind of key thing to look at, and especially to look at relationships within organizations, because organizations are the places where the kind of key resources are uh, that people are fighting over. And so... Uh, that's really the kind of crux. And then we develop out three kind of relational processes, claims making, exploitation, and social closure mm. that operate in all, basically all organizational contexts to produce inequalities. And then we sort of layer on top of that, the kind of institutional contexts that shape how exactly that, that process works. The other thing at a kind of theory level, in sociology, we've had these kinds of problems of micro and macro and we've sort of have this kind of whipsaw social theory going from under-socialized to over-socialized notion mm -hmm. of the actor. And we wanted to develop an actor-centered theory that was realistic. Yeah. So, for example, economists have an unrealistic actor-centered theory. And sociologists have had a hard time actually allowing actors to be part of what produces their fates. And so in that sense, uh, what we think is that the actor, that is you and me, all of us, that we, we know the world, we make our decisions, we make our choices in a set of social relationships. We focus on organizations because they're the stable ones mm -hmm. and they're the stable relationships where the resources are. Mm -hmm. And so we see the actors very much as highly socialized, but within their local context. Yeah. And then the, that local context, that organizational space, the set of 
social relations and networks that you're in right now, of course, they're influenced by who you are as an individual and where that network is, where that organization is in institutional space um, and historical space. But we make our choices locally. You know, on that point, I remember it was in your interview on Org Theory, you talked about how we sort of turned away from the relational turn in sociology that, you know, was brewing in the late 90s with uh, Mustafa Emmerbeyer. And you had a critique about the effect of neo-institutionalism on organizational studies. Uh, there was a, a turn away that produced that gap, that sort of simultaneously like under-socialized and over-socialized view, like that non-meso level. Yeah. Can you explain that to us? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is that the relational turn, if you if you date that to Emmer Byers' 97 uh, article, mm -hmm. the relational turn just never happened inside of stratification research mm -hmm. and didn't quite happen in, in organizations either um, until a little more recently. And what what I think that is missing out of that is that you get kind of static mechanisms. That is, they, they just kind of operate in some sort of natural space where Mm -hmm. Individual traits just automatically produce inequalities, or these institutional contexts just have such a kind of domineering force over individuals. Uh, but really, when you go inside of organizations, people are negotiating things and they're recognizing environments, but they're also sometimes pushing against them. Um, and sometimes mm -hmm. they're tweaking them and, and using, using them in locally meaningful ways, but not in the exact ways that the institutional framework specifies it. So I think there's a kind of, there's an agency that was what I think Don was talking about a few minutes ago, uh, that's missing inside of that, that people are working with these things rather than just sort of blindly copying or following okay. rules set up. And, and so that, that's what I think the relational turns about. And I think that that doesn't mean that these things are absent in either stratification or organizations. And that the key kind of streams of ideas that we take up there are inside of the study of inequality, clearly not the classical stratification, is the intersection, intersectionality and how the meaning of structure or context varies depending on who you are, but also who you're interacting with. And on the organizational side, there's this more recent literature on inhabited institutionalism, which says, yeah, institutions rules, laws, norms influence organizations, but they do not determine it because the organizations are also reacting to adapting, inhabiting uh, the rules of the game as they see them. So maybe can, can you flesh this out, maybe talk about some of the case studies where this, you know, this relational perspective is put into action and affords us a, a perspective that we, we might not otherwise glean if we're taking it through these more macro or micro level approaches. Do you have a favorite case study that you felt was very illustrative or, you know, resonated with you and you were like, oh, yeah, this is what we're talking about? So we have exploitation as a kind of a basic stratification mechanism. Mm -hmm. And most of us learn about exploitation through Marx. And this is where capital extracts uh, value from labor. Critical race theory theorists have been pointing out, oh, my God, slavery, that there are some really some super exploitative systems out there. So I'll give you two simpler ones. So one case study we have comes from Ashley Mears, who studies fashion models and how um, fashion models in New York, especially, produce the nightclub scene. And in return for producing the high glamour scene where you can sell 100, 200, I don't know how, how much, how expensive bottles of vodka, they go dinner and some gifts, right? So they're actually producing the organization and not getting paid for it. 
All right. In this case, it's culturally produced that if they were to get paid for it, then they'd only be call girls. Right. And so there are other kinds of versions. We have a lot of case studies on, on exploitation where things that seem to be normal or even glamorous are also exploitative. The very high hours of work that professionals now are expected to do are culturally produced, right? So a kind of self-exploitation. Okay. So I think part of our saying that there are generic mechanisms is also trying to get sociologists to recognize that things that look dissimilar mm-hmm. are in fact very similar. Okay. You know, one of the cases that I think is particularly compelling in the book um, that we used early on to kind of set up methodologically how to do this is Kate Kellogg's work on hospitals. So she studied three different hospitals that were, and at the time well, at the time that she was studying them, there was a change in the hours requirements for residents. So before residents could work something like, I don't know, 120 hours a week. And the law that was put into place uh, reduced that to something like 80 hours a week. And if you look at that on this, if you're just looking at that on the surface, there's a kind of change in the institutional environment. But how the three different hospitals actually negotiated that was different. So in all of the hospitals, the chief surgeons resisted the implementation of this new regime. And the residents wanted to impose the regime, right? So there's a kind of battle then between the surgeons and the residents, um, and there's mm-hmm. alliances across others as well. But the key thing that's different is is one of those places actually does implement the new work hour laws, and the other mm-hmm. two don't. Um, and the ones that do, she argues, had these, these relational spaces um, where the residents could go and interact away from the purview of the chief surgeons or others in the in the hospital. Um, and so that sort of enables them to develop mobilizing tactics and uh, provide solidarity and support. And so, so the thing that, that I think is powerful to me about that case is that you have the kind of neo-institutional change in the legal regime that works its way out differently in different spaces. Um, and so the inequalities then are shaped differently in those places. Okay, I think I'm getting this. So it's, it's sort of like... For us to talk about uh, exploitation in a broad sense, or to think of it in an individual variable sense, you're going to miss the fact that there are organizations that will either choose to implement policies or take actions that lead to these social outcomes. And if we're over macro or over micro, we're going to miss sort of these intermediate level actors, and we're going to generate incomplete explanations or sort of non-actionable explanations. I think that's really a good summary, but it's even worse than that. If you don't do the meso level, then you also miss the organizations that are doing good things, Uh. right? So sociology, especially on the stratification side, we mostly are pointing out bad things, inequalities, discrimination, things that don't reach our expectations for what a just world should be. But a lot of Dustin in my work, so these cases are also in the book, What we've shown is if you can look at a lot of organizations, you're going to find organizations where women out earn men. Mm -hmm. You're going to find organizations where there is no earnings gap between um, immigrants and natives. And so you also miss the, if you move to either the macro level or the micro level, you miss the real organizational variation, which also means you miss the hopeful parts. Oh, that's it. Okay. So uh, the micro leads to sort of a blindness to the social processes and their variation. And if you're over macro, you're just looking at everybody as if they were the same and you're not, you're not seeing variety in the system. Exactly. Right. And it's yeah. the old sociological problem of the under-socialized and the over-socialized version of action. 
we want to put people in motion where they are with each other. It's funny, I can see the affinities between Monica Prasad problem sociology and sort of this agenda that you have too, right? And it, it makes a lot of sense that if you are, uh, if, you're, if you're examining sort of the diversity in outcomes and how different societies or organizations can structure things differently, you, you get a more pragmatic sociology that might be able to discern empirically solutions rather than bemoan problems or uh, work in broad labels or things like that. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and now, now your work is rooted in uh, Charles Tilley's durable inequalities. That's where you situate the work. Can you sort of explain the evolution of how you got from Tilly to where you are now? How does Tilly feed into, you know, or set the basis for what you developed? So uh, when that book, when Tilly's Durable Inequality came out, I was so excited. And it's partly because he basically was scolding the stratification literature for not paying attention to the um, kind of organizational embeddedness of inequality processes. And in some ways, I said, okay, Chuck Tilly, he's about as high prestige as you can get in sociology. He's going to make my life easier from now on because I've been doing some version of that argument for a while. And nobody listened to him. Mm. Or he got he got assigned for a few years. And he there are a couple of things. One of the things that we discovered early on, and we spent probably 10 years fixing or addressing, was he didn't really provide any kind of a methodological roadmap. And if you're a PhD student trying to figure out how to do a dissertation, you may love his theory, but be damned if you know how you're going to actually turn it into a dissertation and get a job out of it. Right. Yeah. So I, a, a lot of our early work was saying, okay, let's operationalize this. And I, I think the first paper we published was a test of durable inequality. So there's that. I think, however, as we became more sophisticated, we also realized that he basically had a macro actor-centered view. Hmm. And people adapted to the institutions, the institutions spread across organizations. And for me, at least, I was always very jealous of the economists who had a very strong, very silly actor-centered theory. But because they had an actor-centered theory, they could say very definitive things about what people should or shouldn't do. And that sociology, I, at least the sociologies I was aware of, seem to be pretty weak in that dimension. Some dad, Dustin? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I came into this shortly after Tilly published the book, and so I don't have the long history that Don has with it. But I think the two things Don pointed out there over time became very clear to me, which is that it is a very theory-driven book, um, and there's no real clear way to actualize it in your own research. And so that's one of the things we decided, and Don was sort of pushing this early on in writing of the book, was to put a kind of clear methodological statement up at the very front of the book as how you would actually do this. And so, so we do that in chapter two of the book before we even spell out the full details of the theory. Um, how would you actually put this into action in your own research? And that makes it very clear as to how you're going to observe those relationships, how you're going to observe the inequalities as they develop. And then over time, it became clear that Tilly was using a kind, kind of new institutionalism. It had that, that character of environments imposing things onto organizations and them spreading. And I kind of much like the language of rather than diffusing of translating. People take those things that they see other organizations do. They don't copy them. They translate them into their local context to make them work in their local situations. So, I mean, I, yeah, I think what Don said is right. 
That's interesting. So it's like, in a sense, you know, some theories are meant to articulate the true workings of the world. And then others are more like a, almost like a method of theory cookbook. And mm -hmm. I'm gathering that what, what you're trying to achieve here in the book is you're sort of trying to give a toolkit to stratification scholars to sort of give them concepts and places to look. You're saying, look at the meso level, look for things like closure, look for things like exploitation, look like look at things like claims making. And there you're going to find sort of a, a better articulated mechanism where these inequalities arise. Is that is that sort of where you're going with this or? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right to think of this as a theoretical toolkit. And I think if we're successful in this, that people will take the core concepts that we develop and they'll work with them and flesh them out and elaborate them in different ways, um, in different, as they observe different sort of phenomena or different organizations. And, and so I think that's the way to think of, of this as a, a toolkit, the toolkit idea. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I think there's a, perhaps less well worked out, but there's also, there's the set of sociologists who are already at the meso level, both in organizations and some, some flavors of economic sociology, mm -hmm. but neither of those study inequalities. Mm -hmm. And so I think we wanted to use our cases, or at least that's just how I thought of it. The, use the cases to be able to kind of show the kind of rich variety of ways in which organizations are producing inequality. And so that would make it easier for those students sitting in the org class or the econ soc class to tie it to the kind of inequality issues that drive lots of sociologists. I even think the org people in business schools Many of them were kind of converted stratification people, converted by high salaries, and uh, but their students are eager for this. Hmm. You know, I, it occurs to me probably a lot of our listeners are not familiar with the orgs literature or even the strat literature. You know, there's there's a wide variety in the discipline. Maybe it might be worth a, a second to just sort of talk about exploitation, closure, and claims making. Maybe what they are, and you know how people could. You know, look for them or identify them. Like, what are, what are these things? Maybe we'll start with with claims making. What does what does that mean? So, uh, when we use the term claims making, what we're talking about is the way that actors uh, inside of organizations negotiate over the distribution of resources. Um, and so, we're thinking pretty broadly about resources. So, income is one resource. Jobs are another resource. Promotions are a resource. You can think of technology as resources. You can think of the hours that you work as resources. And people make claims um, as to why they're more or less deserving of these, um, as to why they deserve them, oftentimes by arguing as to why other people don't deserve those resources. And so that's the the basic idea is that it's a kind of moral deserving as you're articulating a reason as to why you are the the actor who's deserving you as an individual or it could be a broad group you know unions are making claims on resources um, collectively um, so why why you're deserving of this resource and that actually we argue puts really puts exploitation and social closure into motion okay where People are making claims as to why they should get those resources and take them from some other actors. Um, that would be exploitation. Mm -hmm. Or why some other actors are not deserving of getting uh, access to into this particular job or into this particular resource. And that would be closure, the kind of exclusionary mechanism. And then we flesh out a set of cases, um, lots of cases are, around how those things are supposed to work um, or how we see those things working. 
I would like to um, point out one more aspect that I think is really powerful about the claims making, which is that it is not available in the stratification literature or the inequality literature. Mm. So the idea of claims making is there in the social movements literature as kind mm. of a fundamental way that that movements try to change society. And it's there in symbolic interactionism, especially around status processes. Mm. And um, so if you think about that, the sociologists who are not doing stratification, but are worried about social movements, identity work, respect and dignity and interaction, kind of the people who are at more of an interactional level, we're using those tools. So another way to think about it is if you took your strat class or you took your, your statistics class and it was a strat class in design in um, disguise, that there's a way to connect to these kind of basic social relational principles of who gets treated with dignity and respect. So is it along the lines of, for example, is what you're saying one way to understand why inequality occurs if you want to study it is take a look at how people argue about who deserves what at work or in policy or whatever, watch the mechanics of how these political battles or these rhetorical battles or whatever are played out. And within there, you're going to get a big or a substantial piece of an explanation of why some people are better off or more powerful than others. Yeah, I think you get the last mile of, of interactionally how these things um, have, are built. Mm. You know, and I think you know, the discursive production of status of things like gender and race, of deservingness are kind of fundamental. And lots of that are taken for granted. So when we talk about claims, we talk about claims that are active, claims that are implicit, and claims that are repressed, right? So this is not to say that everyone's always actively making claims. Um, Sometimes you know if you make a claim, you're going to get your ass kicked, and so you don't. Sometimes you take it for granted that you should be exploited. Yeah, no, I think when I think about it, I think these are generic mechanisms in sociology we think about in a broad range of settings, but they never, for for one reason or another, have not diffused into how we think about inequality and stratification. Part of that, I think, is probably the the tools that we have to study inequality come out of surveys of individuals, um, and you don't actually get to see claims making inside of organizations with that it sort of takes out the relational and organizational context but when we but i think a lot of sociologists when we think about how life happens this relational negotiation making claims of deservingness it's how we think about it it's how we think generally these things work yeah i guess it could even like a if you envision the family as an organization it's like the yeah. the claims people make as to why they don't have to do the dishes or watch the kids can lead to imbalances in sort of the distribution of housework or opportunities for free time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, when we've, we've given a few of these talks um, at, at universities um, on the book, um, and this is a fairly common question is, well, how do you think about the intersection of organizations as workplaces and families? Um, and if you think about them both as organizations, both where people are making claims on resources and those claims can work against one another. I can't go get the kids from soccer because I got to work, you know, yeah. like, you know, that's it's claims making in both settings happening. It's like a generic sort of just a generic sort of social mechanism. Where, where yeah, these... We actually had a, a big argument in framing the book 
as yeah. to whether or not that uh, subtitle should be an organizational theory and whether or not we should limit kind of our theoretical ambitions to workplaces. Yeah. And the truth is workplaces is what we know. But in my more arrogant moments, I don't think Dustin has as many. <laughs> Not yet. I was like, no, this is any bounded social network, any set of stable relationships. I think that goes with the territory of org. I mean, I have a, a background in orgs theory too, and you just see it everywhere. Yeah. Uh, just formal or not. Let's let's move on to closure. What's closure? What are we looking for when we are looking at organizations, you know, so any type of organization and trying to explain inequality. What's closure? Closure is the process of inclusion or exclusion. It almost always happens around some kind of categorical distinction. Do you have the right educational degree? Are you the right race? Maybe did you come from the right school? It's This is actually an idea that is pretty um, widespread in the stratification literature. Um, it maps well onto kind of the normal individual traits. But when we think about closure, we think, okay, there's, there's those things, letting people in or letting people out. But there's lots of sociology that are about closure-like phenomena, discrimination. When people get harassed at work, that's a way of kind of excluding them from what's going on. There can even be closure between organizations. So like um, if a firm creates a subcontract relationship with another firm, right? So that they then become out, that that set of work is outside of the firm, right? The subordinate organization now becomes a cost and cannot make a claim on the resources of the firm. So you have places like Google where 50% of their workers are independent contractors. Right. That's good. What a beautiful closure device for keeping the money on the inside. Right. And limiting sort of your obligations to your workers. Right. The moral obligations and the claims making potential are both limited. I also think while we're being imperialist about organizations, um, if you think hmm. about the state <laughs> as an organization, right, that's what the modern nation state does. It creates um, a closure mechanism around who's in or out of this physical boundary. So all the, de the debates around immigration are debates around social closure, who gets included and who gets excluded. And then let's do exploitation. You know, that's the one where everybody has a grasp on it, but it's a little bit like pornography. You know it when you see it. But what do you mean exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, tell us, what, what's your conception of the concept and, and, and the me mechanics by which it you know, operates? I mean, it's, it's really just a, it's an act of taking something from someone else. So the classic uh, Marxian version is um, capitalists appropriate workers' labor, right? So the owners of the firm appropriate what's produced by someone else. Um, one of the things that Tilly does with that idea is to expand it into any kind of categorical distinction. And, and so we've adopted that as well, that you can think about Sure, you can think about owners ex exploiting workers, but you can also think about men exploiting women. The whole devaluation literature in sociology is really, and we argue, a case of men appropriating value from women. Um, you can, and if you expand, actually in that context, if you expand out uh, the resources to think about things like dign dignity and respect, then you're thinking about men exploiting the dignity of women through sexual harassment at work, right? Mm -hmm. But any kind of any kind of act of uh, taking something from someone else, we sort of treat as exploitation. Um, that's in the simplest terms. We also have exploitation case studies that look about again at the relationships between firms or between firms and households. Right. So um, 
for everybody who's listening to their podcast that some member of your family lost their job or or their house during the 2008-2011 financial crisis, that was built around a very limited set of firms sucking the money out of the global and especially the U.S. economy in a way that turned out to be fundamentally unstable. So they exploited their market power in ways that just laid the world waste. Or like uh, the one that I think of with organizations might be Amazon's one-day delivery and the transportation subcontractors that they enlist, who apparently are saddled with uh, you know a lot of liability, a lot of responsibility, and uh, you know so it's a way of uh, Amazon sort of pushing down legal hazard and you know undesirable aspects of the work that they have to do to deliver on their promises. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we have a whole section of the book that looks at the rising inequality in the U.S. and how it's tied to precisely these types of mechanisms of external, of big firms externalizing the cost and the risk and internalizing um, the profits. The Amazon case is particularly compelling, I think, because what they've done there is to push down the legal liabilities off of themselves while still retaining the managerial prerogative so they can control... Yeah when they're supposed to be at work or how how much they're going to be working, how fast they have to work, the pace of work. They control that, but when it goes awry, they're not legally responsible for anything that happens to that. So they're sucking up all of the profits um, through that mechanism. Yep. Getting those prime membership dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that lock-in. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You know, there Have you gotten any pushback on this? You know, there are a lot of people who sort of stake their you know, their view of inequality on concepts that really are individualistic or these sort of macro, it's all about race, class, whatever. Have you gotten any pushback on, on this type of work? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very terse answer. <laughs> so I think there's a there's an answer that comes out of kind of a, from an identity movement point of view. And then there's um, kind of a more macro pushback that we've gotten. Tell us about it. Or, or do you want to even go down that road? You have a preference as to which you take? <laughs> no, I, my, I'll tell you my, my memory of this. Did you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so my memory early on when we were publishing the first set of articles around this, where we're using organization-level data, and I think this is actually quite reasonable pushback. Um, the pushback was, well, you can't, you just have organizations and you don't have individuals inside of them. Um, so we don't really know if this may just be kind of composite effects of individual traits that are working out here. And our solution to that was to find surveys that have both organizations and individuals inside of them. Um, and so that's what actually we've been working on now for in a big project called the Comparative Organizational Inequalities Network, where we have these administrative data across at this point, 15 different countries where we can actually look at the link, we have linked employer-employee data, so we can look at individuals embedded in organizations. And you can extract out of that then, or control out of that, whatever um, language you want to use. You can control out the individual traits, um, and then you see the relational stuff that's still um, at work there. That was the original pushback I remember early on. Yeah, I think that's right. And so there we actually played the played the stratification game and just got better data and better statistical models than the than the um, the competition, yeah. which is always a good strategy. And um, on the book, there's kind of one pushback that we've gotten. It's sort of like 
folks who have this kind of macro reasonable in normal sociological macro kind of thing worried that we were not paying enough attention to the role of institutions by talking about institutions as being kind of locally translated. Our response to that is we think some institutions are really, really strong and other, other institutions are more locally negotiated. It's an empirical question. It's not, it shouldn't be an assumption. The other pushback we've gotten is from folks who I would think should be our natural allies, people who are doing intersectional work, often from a kind of a particular, you know, from the point of view of, let's say, Black women, which is like the classic. And there, I mean, there's a little bit of a threat that our theory is going to domesticate what's been so far kind of a radical critique and more of an outsider theory. I think that that has to be done. The way, you know, when you have a really, really good idea that's also right, you want everybody to recognize it. You want it to be um, general. We'll have to see who reads it. I loved that piece of advice that you gave in your org theory interview about being big and bold, but also patient. You know, there's a lot of pressure to slice salami, you know, get those publication counts up, keep the production line moving. Can you guys, uh, you know, uh, tell us what you meant by this advice? Like, how are you, how do you be big, bold, but also patient? Sounds, you know, sounds like a great path and, and, and good advice, but how do you put that into action? Yeah, you could also add to that, maybe for me at least, be uh, naive. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I started working on this with Don when I was uh, in graduate school, so early on, and it didn't, yeah, I don't know that it really occurred to me. Uh, I think, I, well, let me say it this way. I think everyone comes into graduate school thinking about big, bold ideas, and they want to push those ideas forward. And I think it's quite reasonable to carve out small projects that do incremental science along the way. But one of the worries is that, for me at least, is that you, you can end up losing sight of what the big ideas that motivated you early on are. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it's just advice to not lose sight of what those things that you care about are. What the Always sort of connecting your, your work to what the big agenda or the big idea that you're trying to uh, to push forward is yeah. as opposed to doing like uh, whatever permutations of variables and available models in your set <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah as opposed to what's good enough but it's also doing something different takes longer the data may not exist or you may not even know how to collect it yet the reviewers are going to be harder to talk to. You're not so good at talking to them yet. So there is that kind of, uh, those kinds of, there are costs and there are time costs and everyone doesn't have the same amount of time. Um, I think this is why Dustin suggested he was naive. <laughs> I was already a full professor when we started this thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I could afford to be patient. So I want to say something a little bit about the nuts and bolts of being patient. Sure. So the first paper we did was a kind of an empirical test of Tilly using organizational data that had been collected with Tilly in mind. But after that, we wrote kind of strategically papers to teach ourselves how to use linked employer-employee data. We wrote a two or three theoretical papers that were oriented at, towards sociology, towards organizations, theorists, even one towards human capital economists to try to get our argument right. We've had a series of conferences at the Southern Sociological Society, the Easterns, the Academy of Management, only time I've ever been there, 
and um, where we brought people together who already like, you know, were using some version of these ideas to both create a community and refine the ideas. So there was a kind of a slow building. And um, so in that, we were pretty strategic about how to cultivate ourselves and our audience. It's like I develop a constituency for the project that you're working on. Yeah, I think develop a constituency, but also help. This is how we learned how to speak in a way that someone could hear us. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, Don is Don is actually way more strategic about these things, I think, than I am, because he's been around for a lot longer, probably. <laughs> um, I could I? <laughs> but there's so no I vision. So that's probably worth noting outright um, is my own connection to him. Were I doing this on my own, building that community would be much more challenging <laughs> and doing the work um, would be much more, uh, much more challenging. So well, that's, that's great mentorship. No, absolutely. So you're, you're very lucky. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I also um, said, okay, let's do this high risk strategy. That's <laughs> <laughs> so they take the good with the bad, then, I guess. If I remember right, you didn't quite frame it that way to me, but. No, no I was, I was, I was going to let you realize that on your own if we can. <laughs> You've been listening to the Annex Sociology Podcast. A special thank you to Dustin Avid Holk from Augusta University and Donald Tomaskovic Deeby from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Their book is Relational Inequalities, an Organizational Approach with Oxford University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. The Sociocast team includes Jaylene Colon and Fazia Mohammed. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.